The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. This is episode 380, and I'm here with Tree Triolo. Tree, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Doing well. Um, we are going to get in a discussion with Scott Bird in just a minute about insecurities, and then Scotty Smith will be joining us later uh, to talk about who he was as a teenager. Uh, but now I'm here with Tree, and Tree, um, I know we recently announced that registration has begun for RYM's youth leader training. Um, Tree, you've been to YLT how many years? Just out of curiosity, do you know that off the top of your head? Since 2016, so six, seven years. I'm okay. terrible with math. Something, Whatever that something is, like that. Yeah, I'm not even checking your math. So, mm. so uh, you, you've been a few times. And yeah, it, I think I think I've been seven times. Okay. And um, and I've I've said on this podcast before I came on staff with RYM I was going to YLT. Um, it takes place in, in Nashville and potentially one in Paradise, Pennsylvania. Uh, we've had it a couple of times up there, and then COVID kind of shut some of that down. And so we're exploring um, the possibilities of Wild Tea Northeast occurring. But for sure, Wild Tea uh, Nashville will happen. And um, as I'm talking, I'm going to be looking up the dates. Um, it is January. 23rd to 27th. There you go. Look at you. You got it. Um, so, yeah, if people want to go to rym.org slash YLT, you can see a sample schedule there and then some other information about it. Um, Tree, what are some initial thoughts about YLT? What comes to mind? Yeah, I, I've always come away really refreshed, uh, really excited for the year. Uh, it, it falls at a great spot, so it's right at the beginning of the year, the, the calendar year, and kind of sets up the rest of the year for me. So I come in usually pretty pretty tired but i always leave like super excited for the rest of the year so i've always really gleaned from the teaching but really the relational side of it i mean getting to see people that i haven't seen for a while being able to go out and eat dinner with folks and even just i mean i've gotten so many teaching ideas just from sitting around the table and talking to people there so i've you know i remember a couple years ago i had already planned out the entire spring and I left YLT with a completely different idea and changed the rest of the semester, uh, just based off of a couple conversations with some other youth folks. So I think the the relational side is it it pays dividends for the rest of the year for me. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so many years I went, just as you said, uh, discouraged, somewhat tired, and left feeling encouraged, reminded of why I was doing what I was doing in youth ministry and um, the fellowship. It's awesome just being able to be around other youth workers doing the exact same things you're doing with the exact same struggles. Um, and, and, and yeah, just pointing out the, the kind of informal uh, times of a conversation with other youth workers are just so important. You're getting to grab meals with each other, hang out in Nashville at night, and um, yeah, just to to deepen friendships um, and, you know, start new ones as, as well. 
Um, but yeah, so that's focusing on the informal. I do want to point out the some of the teachers that will be with us this year for the, the formal training. We have Nancy Guthrie, Kelly Capick, Megan Croft, Sam Alberry, Walt Mueller, Les Newsom, and there's other speakers and uh, more details uh, coming soon. Um, but do want to remind people, rym.org slash wild uh, to register. And something we specifically want to stress is to never let money be the reason you don't come to this, that if anyone is out there just thinking, okay, we don't have it in our budget, please reach out, let us know. Um, we want to try to make this possible for anyone to attend um, because we believe it's, it's so important. Um, anything else you want to add, Tree, before we move on? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just have always really appreciated you know, uh, just the work that RYM puts into that. I know they really care for uh, the people that attend and really want to make it a refreshing weekend. Uh, the food in Nashville is also a plus. There are so yes. many good restaurants in Nashville. So if you just want to come for that, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's great food in Nashville, uh, but there's also wonderful people to go eat with. So mm-hmm. even better reason. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to go check that out. Um, I also want to remind our listeners to be checking out the show notes to the podcast. Um, this summer when we kind of got away from our variety show, um, but we didn't do the, the show notes, but we started doing that again. I know over the last several episodes, we've had authors on talking about their new books. We've had other links. So be sure to check out anything we, we mentioned. We typically include in the links and you can also skip around to, to the other segments and we've got the timestamps listed. So uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, for now, um, I'm going to continue my conversation with tree and then Scott bird will be joining us as well. everybody i'm here with scott bird and tree triolo scott tree how's it going going well it's going really well it's so good to see scott's radiant face on zoom right now oh thank you and john has a little beam of light yeah uh, descending from his head so looks pretty angelic himself yes yeah I wish yeah, our listeners could see there, there's some, for some reason, some kind of glare that's coming off from above and it looks like I've got a halo or something. Um, and our, our listeners also cannot see um, Scott's cross-eyed look that he does. It's a token look that Scott pulls off and he tries to make me laugh. Um, you know, it's supposed you to, you just broke the third wall there or fourth wall, whatever it's called. Just behind the scenes trying to make you laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think fourth wall is uh, movies, right? So I don't know what uh, podcasting, what the walls and all that would be. Um, so look, Tree and Scott have uh, come on to talk about insecurities of life and ministry. If you've been tuning in for the past several weeks, you know that all of this really began from a talk that uh, Reverend Brian Habig gave at Together for the Gospel. I think it was back in 2010. Um, and I know we had that link in the show notes. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to go to t4g.org and find that um, talk that he gave called Fears of a Minister. Um, and so kind of from that, we've decided to talk a little bit about, a little bit about insecurities of life and ministry. Um, we might get a little more specific in youth ministry next week. Um, but, you know, even as we get into that, I know they're going to relate uh, to most people. But Scott and Trey, I'd like to just start off by asking you true or false question. All right. Um, do you think everyone has insecurities? Like, is that a true statement or a false statement to say everyone is insecure? True or false? 100% true. Yeah, true. 
All right. Um, why do you guys think that's a, a true statement? Um, y'all both said it very positively. Just curious. I'm too afraid to answer the question. <laughs> Scott, uh, any any thoughts? I mean, I think it's our just our hearts are naturally bent to to find security, and uh, and we don't naturally find that security in the Lord, and so we're insecure people. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Our basic fears are we want to be liked, we want others to like us, and we don't like to be in that gray area where we don't know. So we get really insecure about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, totally agree. I mean, to me, it seems like a silly question to even ask um, because, I mean, everyone has some kind of insecurity. And um, I agree totally with what you guys are saying. I mean, to me, it's like in our DNA, we all know we're not whole. Um, that we're broken people and um, that brokenness, you know, it uh, manifests itself in countless ways, it seems like, and those are our, our insecurities. Um, so just as we kind of start this first talk for today, um, I thought it'd be helpful to, to dig into maybe some of those roots of our insecurities. Um, and again, don't feel like you guys have to be vulnerable and share all of your insecurities. Um, we can all call each other out. You don't have to share them, but we can just uh, call each other out on our insecurities. Um, but Scott or Tree, who would who, who wants to start talking about kind of some roots of insecurities? Who wants to go? I mean, I'll I'll go, but really, just kind of the the first thing that comes to mind is just the um, uh, what I just said. Really, just that we are created to have some kind of security to feel secure. And so when we seek security in somebody else or like somebody else's approval or our job performance or whatever it is, that thing is not designed to give us security. And so um, when we seek after those things, it's going to fail us, which leads to more insecurity, which leads to more striving after those things. And then, uh, and so I think that's why we're insecure people is because we're not finding our security and our identity and our comfort in in the Lord. Yeah. I think we're also, I think we're also experiential. We tend to go back to previous experiences to dictate how we should feel in the present. Um, I mean, even two weeks ago when I was sharing my story, like I was, I laid it all out there. I mean, I, (laughs) I do this too. I mean, that, um, my previous experiences will often tell me something in the moment. Uh, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. And I think a lot of our insecurities come out when we dwell on the past quite a bit. Yeah, that's good. And I think too, just, um, I mean, Scott, maybe kind of what you were saying too about identity. Um, you know, the Lord has given us all gifts. Um, he's given us talents. He's given us abilities. Uh, it's all because of his grace. And sometimes I think we we try to lean on those gifts and those graces um, to, to foster a sense of security um, because sometimes it does, you know, quote unquote work. And it's like, okay, I know I can do this and I know I can succeed at this and this will give me kind of the security that I'm looking for. And sometimes we do get a false sense of that security um, but then again, our brokenness kind of comes to the surface and we're reminded now like th- this cannot give us ultimate, um, security. Um, yeah, I think even, even when you're, when you're beating yourself up over, uh, the things that you feel like you're not good at, the gifts you feel like God 
either hasn't given you or you just haven't used them well. Um, you know, that's a, also kind of a, the same route there is just trusting your gifts more than the Lord's ability to work through your gifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of something you just said too, Scott sparked a thought. Um, maybe a route we could point to is, is jealousy as well. Um, because, yeah, you know, and especially I think of some of the, the youth ministry circles we, we run in from RYM summer conferences to youth leader training, uh, we get to witness other people doing the same thing we're doing. And we notice, oh, wow, they've got all these gifts that I do not have at all. And so there's some jealousy there, but it just it manifests itself in kind of this fearful way um, that we're just, we wish we had what they had. Or, you know, if the Lord just gave me this gift, I'd be so much more secure. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's all related. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, anytime yeah, we show up to youth leader training or together for the gospel or something like that, it's like immediately comparison starts happening. Like, man, I wish I had that guy's personality. Like at my youth ministry would be so much easier if I just had that guy's personality. Or if I could preach or teach like that guy, my youth ministry would be so much better. And yeah, that comparison immediately starts to grow insecurities or it may be exposed insecurities for sure. I agree. I think comparison is a killer. I mean, we often, Scott, you just asked the, the question, things would be better if, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, how many times do we ask that question about just about everything in life? Um, but it always, always falls short because the if usually doesn't come true. Um, mm-hmm. I think when comparing, you know, oftentimes I, I look at other youth workers and like, man, that guy's really good at leading large group games. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to compare that because I don't want to lead large group games, but looking at someone's teaching or, or something else about them, they, I definitely get the, I mean, the insecurities definitely do arise um, and things that you do want to be better at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to me so much, I don't know if this is like the root foundational kind of issue, but just the desire for acceptance. Um, and I think that, you know, is really going back to some of what you were saying, Scott, is that, you know, we were created um, to love God, to follow after God and be his children, perfectly accepted by him. And then we sin against him and that fellowship is broken. And so we've got this kind of longing to be accepted. And uh, ultimately, we know as believers, that only comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we're accepted because of all that Jesus has done, and our brokenness is paid for by his death, and we're adopted into the to the family. Um, but, but there's this just kind of longing for acceptance, that we kind of, we realize we, uh, we were orphaned in that moment in the garden, and um, longing to, to have that. And so that just kind of comes out in so many different areas you know, in church life and what we're doing in our marriage, if we are married and our singleness, wanting to be married. I mean, all of these ways in which just that desire to be accepted and to know that we're, we're loved. Yeah. I think I heard somebody at RYM one time said that uh, everybody is just always walking around. We're basically just bumping into each other saying, do you like me? You know, do you like me? Do you like me? And that's what we're striving after. It's just, we just want people to like us. And really you could add to that, you know, am I doing a good job? Like, I feel like that's kind of a constant thought. I I wouldn't articulate it like that, but just, just constantly thinking, all right, am I, am I doing a good job? Does this, does this person think I'm doing a good job? Do these people think I'm doing a good job? And it is just striving after that approval that already have in the Lord. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I know we're going to start wrapping this up before too long, but any other thoughts on um, just kind of root issues surrounding insecurities, other other thoughts that might be tangentially related to this? I mean, generally, I think just biblically, you know, it's a fear of man versus a fear of God a lot of times. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, that kind of can sum a lot of it up, I think, to the, um, you know, like we said, trust in our, our gifts and our work to do God's work is um, can lead to insecurity and not trusting the Lord to, to do what he's going to do, you know, either with or without us. So. Yeah. I think jumping off that, just the whole idea of we, we've got trust issues, right? You know, we in those moments of deep insecurity, we're not trusting in what the Lord is doing. We're not trusting that he's equipped us for it. We're not trusting that, um, that we are doing well in that work. Uh, I think the, the less we trust God, the, the more heightened our insecurities are going to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of, it seems like, I mean, you know, so much of this, we're just, we're talking about fear. Um, you know, it's kind of all under this umbrella of, of fear and we're created to fear the Lord and we don't fear him properly. We fear everyone else. And it seems like I heard, uh, it seemed like it was Jerry Seinfeld, uh, who talked about, um, how hard it is to be a comedian. Um, because he said something along the lines, like it's easy to scare anyone like horror movies and things like that, because everyone's terrified anyway, but it's harder to make people laugh because, you know, <laughs> they're always fearful. And, uh, and I just thought that was interesting that, you, you know, you've got a comedian just making this observation that everyone is walking around fearful, that we just have this natural bent towards fear. Um, and again, so we're, we're talking about these desires, these longings, um, but, you know, next week, I think let's uh, focus maybe on some specific insecurities of youth workers. Um, I guess we've kind of dipped into that a little bit, but we'll talk more specifically about that. Um, for those who tuned in last week, you know that Scotty Smith talked about insecurities of life and ministry, but he's joining us again this week to talk about uh, his life as a teenager. So for now, here's Scotty Smith. Scotty, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. It's been too long, John. I know. Your, your viewers can't see how handsome you are, but I've got that. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, and I'll be, I'll be sure to send you a check um, for that comment as well. I, I appreciate it. Um, our, our listeners know that for RWIM's 50th, we've been bringing on various guests and getting them to talk a little bit about their teen years. And obviously we're, we're going to be doing that with you today. Um, but I thought a good starting point is just tell us where you're born, where you were born and, and siblings and family, all that good stuff. Absolutely. So I am from the metropolis of Graham, North Carolina. Billy is not from there and Graham Crackers did not start there. <laughs> but it's just halfway between Greensboro, North Carolina and Chapel Hill, my alma mater. So, um, Grew up in Graham, have one sibling, a brother three years older than me named Moose. That's not on his birth certificate, but <laughs> as long as I can remember, he was nicknamed Moose. And um, so just, yeah, just uh, life started with my mom, dad, and Moose and myself and uh, lived life in Graham until I uh, went off to uh, Chapel Hill. All right. And I already have to ask Moose, um, where did that come from? I've got yeah. to ask about the nickname. Hey, our listeners won't get this probably, but there used to be a, 
a TV cartoon show and a cartoon series called Archie. Um, mm. And Archie had a character within the um, cartoon strip of a character named Moose that wore a particular kind of hat that was like my brother's hat. Now, Moose, my brother Moose went on to become larger like a moose, but it was more the hat than his girth when he first got that moniker. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. F figure we had to clarify that at the beginning. So, um, well, well, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your, your teen years? How would, how would your family have described you? How would your friends have described what kind of a teenager you were? Well, I, um, I moved into my teen years out of, uh, major family crisis when I was uh, fall of my sixth grade year, when I was 11 years old, my mom was killed in a head-on car crash. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from age 11, moving into age 13, that's, a, uh, that's an incredible vacuum. Uh, my dad uh, was so impacted by mom's death, he shut down emotionally and, and continued to pay for life. But there was just a lot of a vacuum there and so when I turned 13, you know, kind of a tail end of eighth grade, beginning to go into the ninth grade, oh my goodness, uh, John, a lot of, a lot of ambivalence, a lot of, uh, a lot of deep insecurity. I didn't think in those categories, but I can look back now at that, you know, that freshman year in high school, walking around, uh, feeling so, um, you know, so uh, I, I guess so not known and kind of liking it that way. Mm -hmm. Well, Scotty, I know I've, I've talked with you before and I knew that was an aspect of your story. And uh, I definitely want to want to come back to that, um, moving to something a little more lighthearted. But again, I, I don't want to be insensitive to that. Um, you know, we've been asking a lot of our guests that come on talking about uh, school yearbooks. And, uh, we know that there's categories like most athletic, most likely to succeed, most courteous class clown, all of those things. Um, what category would have described you? Well, I would have liked to have gotten most athletic. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. I would have liked to gotten most likely to succeed, but actually, um, both for fun, but also out of just my story, the one superlative that they had when I was in high school in the 60s uh, that I went after was best dressed. Now, that's kind of odd. I mean, but back in the uh, 60s, we were going from preppy into hippie clothing. So I had to go, I had to morph into a lot of directions <laughs> to navigate towards getting my senior in high school best dressed with that, which I did. So um, that's just nice. Part of my part of my yearbook. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. Help us um, describe for us preppy back then. What would preppy have, have looked like? Yeah, exactly. So, so when you think of preppy, think of a, you know, uh, so I'm going to laugh here because people don't know what Weegians are. Just think of kind of a, a, a you know, the uh, the polo golf shirt, the guy wearing khakis. Just think of think of the person now that at some university setting they just simply want to look uh you know gosh what would be our contemporary stores you know it's like i've got a reach here to think about preppy almost yeah. like preppy opposite of uh torn knee jeans and plaid shirts just kind of you know, that world of uh as clothing's changed through the years to what we reach for to define us so yeah yeah 
That's Sorry. the best I can do on prepping. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And yeah, congrats on that transition from that to the hippie uh, culture. Way to, way to go on that. Um, Enjoy that one. That was a good one. <laughs> uh, so how, how would your teachers have described you? You know, what was Scotty Smith, the, the student like in the classroom? Well, a, a real contradiction between what I knew was going on, on the inside and outside. So I've always uh, had personality. I think my teachers from elementary, even up into high school, would say, um, uh, get back in your seat, um, uh, quit speaking out, uh, listen more. So um, I think, you know, my use of humor and, and, and personality that led some people to think I was an extrovert when really I was a uh, very much in pained introvert. Hmm. Um, Scotty, a, a milestone for, for teenagers is getting their own driver's license. Um, what do you remember about that whole experience of getting your license, learning to drive all that? Well, well, um, again, as I mentioned, my, my, my dad wasn't overly present, so he wasn't going to be the one that taught me to drive. So, uh, actually at our high school, you are required to go through driver's training and it usually started when you're 15 or so. And back in the day. We, I learned to drive in a uh, straight shift car in the column. So, you know, a lot of our listeners oh, yeah. have no clue there was a time when you would shift, you know, and use a clutch. So that happened. And then, um, of course, I loved getting my license when I did. And I think my first car was a $300 Renault Dauphine three or four cylinder car with felt like a sewing machine engine driving it. And if you leaned against it, you might dent the hood or something. So, but it was, a uh, it was wheels. It was mobility. Right. So, uh, yeah. started early on. Then I kind of went through an iteration of different cars from there. Yeah. And don't they call that that three on the tree? Is that what it was called? Three on the tree, like... something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of my friends had a car like that. That's right. Um, so, so as you were driving, what would you have been listening to? Um, what, what kind of music were you into oh, back then? Yeah, e e easy, easy to answer that one. So I grew up in a world of rhythm and blues. And when I mentioned that, think uh, Motown's, think Philly music, uh, uh, Stax, record, Stax Records in Memphis, just, uh, you know, funky music, uh, Temptation, Four Tops. Uh, that was a, I was part of a culture called beach music culture, which is not West Coast surfing music. But it was, you know, just the music that we danced to. And then, but also, I'm 14 when the Beatles show up on Ed Sullivan and I see them live. So I go into R&B, into the British invasion, uh, into the music of the 60s. So my, uh, my soundtrack, memory in high school, and then, you know, on to playing um, in a band during my senior in high school. So pretty much R&B with Beatles plus everything that happened after that. Oh yeah. And, and, and tell us a little bit about the band that you, you played in. Well, uh, mentioned my one sibling Moose and Moose is, is the gifted musician in the family. And he, um, he started playing in a, a local, I guess it started as a garage band, which means, you know, you have a few friends, you get together, somebody's got an amplifier and set of drums and, crank it up and just kind of pretend like you're, you know, a band. He started there, but his band through uh, early years in college, they did back up groups like the Temptations and Ford Tops and Marvin Gaye. Well, um, there was a local band in our area in Burlington, North Carolina, that needed keyboard players. So they didn't ask me 
they asked my brother Moose, because he's a fabulous keyboard player. They said, you think Scotty would like to join our band? And he didn't miss a beat. Yeah. Well, then Moose told me, then problem was I didn't play the organ. So he taught me music theory and, uh, and everything I needed to know to play in this band within a month. So um, don't think that means, you know, I'm a great musician. No, I'm a wannabe guy that fortunately got into a band and that my whole senior in high school, we traveled from Washington, D.C. to Athens, Georgia, playing fraternity parties on the weekend. And I was the organ player. So 10-piece wow. band, we had a bus. So it was, you know, in terms of high school narratives you might write for yourself, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty pretty awesome in that sense. Yeah. And so you're a senior in high school, and on the weekends, you're touring with the band. Is that right? You're going up. Usually it would be like a in the fall, like here we are getting ready to go into the fall. Uh, a football weekend, maybe we'd go to the University of Virginia and play uh, uh, at one of the fraternity parties for Saturday night. And then Sunday afternoon during the football weekend, they might have an inter-fraternity party gathering. In fact, my senior year in high school, right after I became a believer, my last job with the band, we played for the entire graduating senior class, 1968 at University of Virginia. Wow. That's that's amazing. Um, well, we've been asking everyone who comes on uh, to point to a, a significant childhood event that the Lord used to shape you. And so I'm just thinking of the, the mention of your mother's passing. Um, what, what do you remember about your, your mother? Yeah. So uh, mom had just turned 38 and had um, just kind of moved into retirement from my, my dad. I was a professional photographer and mostly uh, shooting school pictures. So he would be the guy that would come to your school. You'd sit on that little stool, get your picture, get the packet, send it to your grandmother for Christmas. <laughs> but my mom ran a clothing store called Scotty's Children's Shop in, in Greensboro. And we moved into what my parents would have called their dream house uh, in the third grade. So mom is now transitioning. She's going to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I had that experience of her stay-at-home mom for about two years, two and a half years, and, and then her wreck, you know, her, her crash, and, and just to be ripped out of my life in that fashion. Um, unquestionably, that childhood trauma uh, explains a lot to me now of how I lived uh, struggling for identity, drifting from this to that um, during my high school years. And, uh, that wound, which I did not process until a lot later, uh, explained a lot of where uh, the wandering, the emptiness, and the um, places I went to try to find life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'd love it if, if you're willing just to talk about home life a little bit more. I know you mentioned that kind of post your, your mother's accident, um, just how that shaped relationship with your father and, and Moose as well. Yeah, so... I think Moose and I found solace. We grew up, um, we grew up living in the same room together for as long as I can remember. We never had separate bedrooms, and so late at night we would turn on uh, a radio station, AM station on the West Coast or up in Chicago, and just just listen to music. And 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 you know that became a soundtrack, solace, escape for us, because Dad, um, I don't have any physical memory of my father after my mom's death, especially uh, touching me physically, uh, either in affection or discipline. Uh, again, so 
So think of it like this in some ways. I'm the kid that kind of felt like an orphan in his own home. Um, did not really know how to relate to my dad. Um, we got along. He wasn't a harsh man, but he was a driven man and a hard, hardworking provider. But it, it was a real vacuum, just a real relational vacuum. And we weren't a part of a network of relationships that immediately filled that void. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the themes of um, insecurity, of, of uh, redefining myself kind of as I went. Um, but I think just early on this commitment, I do not want to hurt like it felt um, like when mom died. Mm-hmm. So running from a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And, and talking about just not having the, the physical touch um, from your father, uh, did, did you and Moose, did y'all show affection towards each other? Was it he would say, bond of just yeah, well, here's a way to explain it. Say, oh, yeah, you touched me. Remember the time you threw the dart and stuck it in my leg? Remember when you <laughs> the BB gun and shot me in the neck? Oh, yeah, yeah, you were physical. <laughs> well, we weren't fighting, brothers. But, I mean, we were, um, we were bonded through that loss. Mm-hmm. And I would say certainly Moose and I, for the most part, um, really, uh, it was more than tolerating. I mean, we really were together in our loss. And looking in our own way uh, for where, where relationally is that board going to go? Uh, spiritually, we grew up going to church, uh, but the church we grew up in, uh, it was more of, of a presumed gospel. So, you know, we kind of just assumed we're Christians just because we were always taken to church. And uh, um, it was certainly doing, during a lot of that, that um, as a senior in high school playing in that band, when I first actually uh, had an encounter with the gospel where I consciously uh, began to think in terms of who is Jesus and what is the gospel. Hmm. And so was it your senior year when you became a believer? Yeah. March of my senior year in high school, a friend of mine, one of the, one of the people I grew up with that uh, you just do different section of, sections of life with, he went to a fellowship of Christian athletes weekend and heard the gospel, uh, became a believer, and came back and just started annoying me, beginning to talk <laughs> about this uh, relationship with God. Uh, he knew I did not have, but I did not know I did not have. And so he, he uh, probably just two or three weeks after his coming to put faith in Christ, uh, almost literally drugged me to a Billy Graham movie, one of the early Billy Graham films. And he, he was an all-state um, football player, and I'm the skinny little musician, so I'm, I'm not going to put up a lot of resistance. But um, yeah, it was spring of my senior year in high school when I uh, first consciously um, trusted Jesus. And so he annoyed you into the kingdom. Is that right? He annoyed <laughs> me into the kingdom. That he did. And, uh, but thankful for uh, a friend that, that – and fortunately, pretty soon after that, both – um, my friend and several folk in our area began to um, be pursued and discipled by, of all things, John, a director of youth ministries at a YMCA, if you've ever heard of such a thing. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, and, and this might lead into the next question. Just some of those early role models that you remember from life. I mean, this could be uh, pastors, teachers, coaches. Yeah. Well, easy. Uh, even as a kid, before mom 
died. And then after my mom's parents, my grandparents, uh, Granny and Paul Paul Ward, my middle name is Ward, my mom's maiden name is Ward, I always saw the reality of faith in my grandparents. We as kids used to love to go stay a week during the summer at their home in Charlotte. And, and the way they would pray at the table, the, I, I just saw a reality and a kindness and a welcome. So without a doubt, I think um, my, my grandparents uh, were intriguing. They were safety. They were safe haven. They were fun. Um, and, you know, I think soon after that is when um, I met this guy named J.L. Williams, who was the son of Methodist missionaries and uh, who had gotten kicked out himself from Asbury Seminary. He was such a rebel oh, and wow. did not like all the conservative rules. So he ended up going, finishing up at Duke Divinity School, but ended up in Burlington as this uh, youth director presence. And he uh, and his wife, they were in their mid-20s. They were a breath, breath of fresh air. This, this new faith had come to. They just were passionate, alive. It was 1968. So, you know, part of what history calls the Jesus movement was underway. And there was just, uh, so, you know, certainly JL and Pat, first spiritual parents, uh, I would say one, I would mention one more. In the absence of home life, the Lord did raise up two families in my community um, that said this to me, uh, John, really profoundly, Scotty, you'll always have a bed in our home and a chair at our table. Mm. This was said during my high school years as a way of saying, we know what you're not getting and we don't we don't judge your dad, whatever else, but you know, please, please know you're welcome here. And, and that was an enormous, enormous, enormous gift to me that, um, that, that the Lord used uh, through many years to give me a taste of welcome. Um, I became convinced I was going to heaven when I died long before I was convinced that God was my father who deeply cared for me individually. But those families gave me a taste of that. Mm, that's that's awesome to hear that. Um, and and uh, as I hear these families reaching out to you, telling you you've got a, a chair at the table, a bed in their house. Um, was your father receiving community from people? Were people reaching out to him that you're aware yeah, of? My dad, my dad, you know, my professionally, my dad had colleagues, and and they did fun stuff, you know, um, some golf and all. But I don't have any memory. Uh, before my mom died, of my mom and dad having those primary couple friends that you think we always love to go on vacation with, or their house or our house this weekend. They're, I think my dad was, um, my dad really liked a home in which everything was in order and quiet. And I think, uh, uh, um, and in fact, I know this to be true because my brother actually did a research paper one time on. Uh, uh, talking to one of my mom's best friends and my mom's best friend would say this, uh, an ideal day for Scotty and Moose's dad would be by the time he, Tom, my dad gets home from work, I've already fed them, bathed them and they're in bed. So my, my dad loved my mom, absolutely adored her. And the world he grew up in was violent. It was abusive. And he found in my mom, a heart and a presence. 
And he was never fathered well. So he really did, I know a hundred times better than his dad, but he did not know how to do a lot more than provide economically for his boys. Mm-hmm. Well, Scotty, if you could take um, a teenage Scotty Smith out for a cup of coffee, uh, what are some things you'd like to tell him? What are some, some truths you think you needed to hear during those years? Wow. Yeah. Thank, great question. Um, I think I've mentioned a few, but it's good to underscore them in this fashion. I mm-hmm. think uh, um, that the shame, the insecurity, I felt that uh, there was a God who wasn't just concerned to take me to heaven when I died, but to really to know me, to love me, to enjoy me while I live. I think, um, see, when my mom died, uh, like a lot of us, you find some way to medicate the deepest pain in your life. Mm -hmm. At 11, you're not going to go start rolling reefers and snorting cocaine. (laughs) For me, however, I discovered food. So I I, uh, I put on weight by the time I started high school as a ninth grader. Uh, I had inherited the nickname Meatball because I was pretty short, and pretty rotund. And I think a lot of the body image shame stuff that I began to experience that we do in high school, right? It's in high school when you start undressing in front of a lot of strangers because we call it PE class. You start becoming more aware of what's true, good, and beautiful relative to your culture. And I think for me, a lot of that um, shame of weight and, and, and a lot of that that drove me into extreme dieting and being so overly conscious about body and all that stuff. And, and that's again, why maybe, you know, uh, if Adam and Eve reached for fig leaves, I just reached for clothes to kind of, kind of like my theme in high school became, ob- observe me, but don't know me. Notice me, but don't know me. And that's been a theme to a lot of high school. I would say to that high school kid, Scotty, you don't have to try so hard. Really, you don't have to pretend or pose. Um, you don't have to break eye contact. You know, I'm not going to find you out. You know, just, just, uh, just let me enjoy you. And uh, that would have been that would have been such a gift. Mm-hmm. Well, Scotty, when, when did you first sense your your call to the ministry? Uh, when did you start to think, okay, I, I want to, to tell others about this, this loving father? Well, again, the timeline's kind of kind of amazing. So I mentioned as a senior in high school, I come to faith and start being discipled and walking with um, this uh, wonderful um, youth director at the Y, J. O. Williams and his wife, Pat. And, and I think, you know, uh, the summer of 1968, he took about 25 of us on our first mission trip. And he said, we're going to, you know, uh, I, I want you to know to study the Bible is going to open your heart to other people. And uh, he was child of missionaries, grew up in a culture that the gospel is all about um, loving the other. And I think that summer trip to Mexico and the fact that I had to learn, memorize Bible verses to qualify to go and stuff, and hmm. just beginning to <clears throat> find a taste of belonging. Um, so I started in the fall of 68, University of North Carolina, assuming I was going to go into pharmacy. I'm not sure why I don't like chemistry. Did work in a drugstore. Maybe that was <laughs> a bad reason. But 
my freshman year, my really first, first eight weeks at Carolina, I felt my internal call to ministry. And I responded in this way. Uh, there was no doubt that it was no doubt I was called to set my life apart for serving this new story called the Bible and this peace I felt in my heart. But as soon as I felt my call, I said to God, that's great. Yes, but I'll never go to seminary and I'll never work in the church because <laughs> I de-churched John long before it became popular. Hmm. Wow. Um, shifting from your teen years to speaking to teenagers, um, if you had a room filled with teenagers, uh, what are some things that you would like to tell them? Well, I would be completely free now, not to assume that every teenager is like me with regard to all the externals, but so free just to tell my story, not to say, I know what you're like, right? In other words, I would want to be in a room to say, some of you know what this feels like. And just to talk through those years of just the, the, the you know, the, uh, the fear, the fear of being found out, and, and the running to all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I ran to, to alcohol to numb the pain. I mean, I even would carry around an empty, uh, no, a, a glass that had ginger ale in it to pretend like I was drinking liquor before I even tasted mm -hmm. it. So, I mean, I, I would want just to hopefully speak freedom and invitation to a room of teenagers, <clears throat> whatever their wounds are, uh, whatever their illusions are, however they misthink uh, or, or, or underestimate uh, the beauty of God's love. Uh, I, would, I would absolutely want to do anything I could, whether I had an hour or a weekend, to throw the curtains wider on the love of God and to say, this is the father I always wanted and, uh, and was only going to have by coming alive, coming alive to the love of God for us through Jesus. So I, I think that's, that's kind of a broad brush category there, but I would be free to be vulnerable, free to start with my brokenness and say, I'm still in process. Mm -hmm. And here's, the fountain of grace that um, we're all invited to. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's so good. And Scotty, I know we're about to start wrapping this up, but I'd love for you to to speak to parents of teenagers as well as as youth workers in just a minute. But first, what's an encouragement you would like to give to parents of teenagers? Well, having been the parent of two teenagers, and now being a granddad of no teenagers yet. Well, yes, I do. I'm my my oldest grandchild, Finn. He's 13, so I do have a, have a teenager. Right. I mean, without a doubt, Darlene and I are so thankful that Jack and Rosemary Miller, as parents with kids all over the map in that time, to, to really to know, to know it's not hype, cliche, or spin to say, God cares about our kids more than we do. And I think one of my benefits uh, as a youth pastor for 10 years was the fact that some of the kids that grew up in my youth group that had what you and I would call maybe the perfect scenario, mom and dad love each other, they're tucked in, they're sung to, they're catechized in a good sense, not put under the law. Some of the kids that you would have thought on a formula-based reality went through absolute hell, mm. finally discovered the gospel. Other kids that grew up in the most difficult, challenging situations you know, the Lord reached in. So I, th I think a part of that is 
moms and dads, youth pastors, none of us is the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> God's covenant is true. He is redeeming the nations. These promises are for us and our kids. Our calling is not to fix our kids. Our calling is to not put our identity tied into how our kids turn out. We are to love as unto the Lord. Our proud kids that get straight A's and every honor, they need grace as much as our kids that are shooting up before they get out of high school. So I, th I think really gospel-centeredness, you know, youth pastors, youth workers, moms and dads, best if we get anybody under our care is just growing in awe of Jesus for us, um, groaning and growing in grace and living that out and, 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 and building lanes, but not cages for our kids. Mm -hmm. yeah, I needed to hear that today. That was so good. Um, as we close this out, I'd love for you to speak an encouragement to youth workers and, and not the upfront youth worker, but kind of the behind the scenes. What's some counsel, some advice you'd love to give them kind of behind the scenes? Oh, that's a perfect question. Uh, first of all, thank you, everybody in any orbit steer layer of student ministry. Your labors in the Lord will never be in vain because Jesus's labors for you and those kids are absolutely not in vain. They have guaranteed that one day this very earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. So thank you. Thank you, those of you that are comfortable um, being the, the volunteer that picks up kids and just drives them around. You know, those of you that clean up after them, just know that that is gospel seed that you are sowing. And, and, and I wish I had been able to be far more relationally present just as a listener, just as an encourager. Uh, I wish that um, I had y'all's gifts now, those of you that know you don't want a microphone in your hand. You just want kids to love. So thank you. Just, just, just keep being present. Offer redemptive presence. Offer two times as much listening as speaking. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Just, just continue to be present to love. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And may the gospel become more and more true, good, and beautiful to you, no matter how long you're in student ministry, whether you ever have kids yourself. Just enjoy being enjoyed by the Lord. Amen. Scotty, that's an awesome word to end on. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to come on, to share about your life, to share uh, just wise counsel uh, to us. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.